on this episode of The James Quandall Show. 90% of my emotions were all of that. And then there was this little 10% thing that said, I could be a James. I could be an entrepreneur again. I could do some really cool things. And then that 10% grew to 20 and then 50 and then 80. And then and so now... Tim Schmidt has spoken globally for over 20 years, inspiring audiences from Bali to Boston and Malaysia to Minneapolis. His unique life experiences as the son of an international teacher and adventurer has prepared him to inspire entrepreneurs, executives, and clients with his life wisdom, insightful humor, and courageous accountability. Tim has had a successful career in the financial services profession for 34 years, from being a top 5% financial planner in 1987 to working directly with the CEO of a Fortune 300 company. His financial planning firm consistently ranked in the top 250 in the world. Tim grew up in Hong Kong for 11 years of his youth. Life balance and adventure has always been a passion of his. Tim and his son John summited Mount Rainer in Washington State in 2010. He and his wife bicycled through France to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. Tim is the past president of Gamma International Board, overseeing the leadership development of the financial services profession worldwide. In 2010, Tim wrote a book called What Really Works, researching the seven F's, which are faith, family, finances, fitness, friends, fun, and future. Today, Tim is founder of Dry Dot Consulting, excelling in executive coaching and keynote speaking. Tim and his wife, Jeanette, have been married 34 years and live in Waconia, Minnesota. They have two adult kids and four grandkids. Tim, I am super happy to have you on the, the show. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. How are you doing today? Unstoppable. Yeah? What? Why is that? <laughs> I just had coffee with a guy who who always uses that phraseology. And I just love it because it's just, it feels like this sense of optimism about the world. So I've, I've started using that. It reminds me of a uh, a story I learned earlier in my career when people would be like, oh, what are you working on? Oh, you just say nothing. And it's like, oh, like you always say nothing. Like, what am I paying you for again? <laughs> it's like <laughs> unstoppable. Like, how's life going? Unstoppable. It's unstoppable. Like, it's just a Nice answer. Yeah, it's hard to not smile or get a reaction when you open up a conversation like that. That's, that's see, you're already giving us some unstoppable knowledge. So <laughs> the reason I wanted to bring you onto the show was you wrote this, this excellent book called What Really Works, Blending the Seven Fs to Live with Less Stress and Lead with Less Fear. And I got this book, I think, last year sometime, and I was reading through it. And for those of you who have been reading and listening to me for a while, you would know, I was like, this is the book I wanted to write. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I need to talk to him. And so then we started talking, and we have become just... You're just one of my best friends, and I just look forward to talking to you all the time, and I always just want more time for for us to just talk. So, Yeah. This, uh, this I, book, but mm. basically the, the reason for this conversation is I sent an email out to the audience, the James Quandall Show audience, and uh, a couple dozen people replied and said where they scored on each of the individual seven Fs. And before we get into those scores, can you kind of just explain 
one, how you came up with these and what the seven F's are? You know, what's, what's funny is this whole seven F's concept started when my kids were really young and on new year's day or whatever Sunday fell around the new year, I said to the kids, we're not going to church today. We're going to just review where we saw God in our life over the whole past year. And we, James, we literally went into a walk-in closet with candles, right? To set up the kind of the scene. And we opened a calendar and said, remember in January, we were in Cabo. And remember the the undertow was so dangerous and, and we felt God's protection there. And then remember in February, we did that charity thing as a family. It was just a really healthy way to just pause all of life and reflect back on the whole year. And as part of that exercise, we would then say, let's score our life on what at that time was the six F's. And then what would you set as goals for the next year? Now, I'm I'm not going to be so foolish to think that the kids were like fired up to do this. It was a complete eye roller. Right? But were they excited to not go to church that week? Oh, of course, of course. And to have hot chocolate and coffee in a walk-in closet with candles. I mean, it was just, we wanted to make it a moment to reflect on the whole year, looking at the family calendar to then have us reflect on, gosh, where is my faith on a scale of one to 10? How would I score my family on a scale of one to 10? And my finances. Now, finances is a little funky when they're like eight and 10. But the point is, even a lawn mowing business, you could reflect on the stack of $20 bills that you have in your bedroom, right? And then fitness. Where do I feel my, my, my physical fitness is? Where's my friend score? Where's my fun score? And where's my future score? And so I had a file every year. I think we did this 10 years in a row where I could actually see how my kids would pause and reflect on life for a moment after reviewing the family calendar and then having that in their mind as they start the new year and they go to school and make new friends and they they sign up for some sport or go to PE. So all these seven F's are ringing true in, in their mind. Did you ever go back with them and actually review those again, like the next year? We would. We would, we would look back and, and say, where were we a year ago? You gave your friends a score of a three. And now I see that you know we're a year later and now you're giving it a score of a six. What do you see changed in that time? And just help them to self-discover where they could have seen that friend score change. Yeah, that's amazing. And so are you still doing these surveys for yourself each year? You know, I probably do it with myself uh, quarterly. And then with my executive coaching clients, I also add that as a uh, outside of work score, because as a lot of times I talk with CEOs and their concern is what's going on today uh, in their life at work. And the seven F's just gives you an immediate score. And, and of course, these men and women are competitive right? They've gotten to these big jobs in their careers and they don't like giving things a three out of 10 or at six out of 10. When you have that Delta, instantly they want to do something about it. 
So it becomes a really robust kind of holistic coaching view rather than just HR issues, direct report issues, uh, those kinds of things. So before we get into the the audience's survey, I'm curious with those, the CEO group, are you seeing any themes in their seven Fs of opportunities? Friends seems to be a low score among uh, my top executive uh, clients. Um, they are just going and going and going and it's, it's work and it's home and it's work and it's home. And it's the majority is work and even home takes the backseat as well. But I would say friends was uh, a low score for uh, a lot of my clients that just don't have time to fit that in. Yeah. And that matches the audiences. Exactly. That was the, the low hang, low hanging fruit for sure was friends. And why do you think that is? I think they feel like there's no time for it. I had a conversation this week. I was in Milwaukee visiting my in-laws and I have a client that lives there. So we met for coffee one morning and he said he just doesn't have time. And you know what, James, when I explained that Jesus chose 12 that were his inner circle, then he had three that were really tight, Peter, James, and John. And then he had John the disciple that Jesus loved. So he had this one, three, 12 concept. And, and what's so funny is as I was driving home from Milwaukee back to Minneapolis, this client called me and he said, so now tell me about the three, what, what should I be looking for in those three? And so he took it so seriously that he started journaling about who is his one that could be that that person that you completely dump your bucket onto and they dump your, their bucket onto you. And you've got this incredibly tight, nutritious relationship that you pour into one another. That's highly confidential. With, with Jesus, these, they were working together and spending time together. So just like connecting it to like a corporate world, like those would be potentially direct reports almost. If you're at work all the time, can you make friends at work and still keep a safe work environment like can your friend the people you spend time with at work count as your friends that's a that's a super cool question I, I, you know what and i've never thought of that before but my, what my gut tells me is that the one and the three can't be work related right the, especially the one in fact my one is a friend that we're in different industries we go to different churches we, you know, it's it's very much uh, we're running our own lives, but we come back together. In fact, you and I are kind of that way, right? I would put you in my three, and so the idea of of uh, having someone that I mean, if I dumped my bucket to someone at work, and I'm in a I'm in a big job as a senior VP or a CEO president role, there's risk in that. Uh, it's pretty rare, I think, to have someone that close, that tight. That's at work. So what about in the top 12 then? I mean, these are the people you're spending. You're like most of these executives, and I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this show spend more time with their coworkers than they do with their kids and their family. Yeah, I do think you can have some from the 12 in there. I always have, but they're pretty unique and, and far between. I mean, it's it's a rare individual that reports to you that you can dump your bucket onto and share everything. Yeah, that's tough. What about peer relationships? So d 
to other, like if you're a department head, other department heads, you don't necessarily, you have dotted line to each other. You don't report to each other. You maybe report to the same vice president. What about in those scenarios? I, I think you're right. I think if it's a peer that's equal in terms of title, uh, that's actually a really good place to go for someone in that top 12. When I was a, a VP at a Fortune 300 company, uh, there was a new VP that came in, Harvard grad. She was sharp. And she approached me and said, could, could, I, could you and I meet every single week for the first year? I just want to pick your brain and learn what you're doing. I've heard good things. And, and that was one of those, James, that exactly where you're going with that question is we were able to be really open with one another once once that trust was built. And have you been able to continue that relationship after you left that company? We do. We we connect on a on a probably every other month basis. In the corporate world, I felt like I had a lot of friends at the Best Buy stores that I worked at. They were people that worked with me for a number of years or people I reported to or people I saw at meetings and I go, "These are my friends. These are the but basically, I think what I was defining friendship at the time was not an emotional relationship, more as like, these are the people I experienced the majority of my life and time with. And we did go through things like we growing a business together, surviving when uh, Circuit City, CompUSA, all those businesses were going out of business. Like we built some deep friendships, but then left Best Buy and how many of those people do you think I still talk to today? Like very, very few. And I'm open to talking, but those relationships just didn't stick for whatever reason. So what about like childhood friendships and like and seeing those through through in, into deep into adulthood? Is there, do you think there's importance in that? I think there's importance in that because those that you would have friendships with would have been your very best friendships. I've got a weird situation in, in my life, um, and you heard it in the opening bio when uh, James mentioned that I lived in Hong Kong for 11 years. So my, my high school friends um, are all over the world, right? So I don't, I don't have any that live within 300 miles of me. Uh, there's a couple that I'll pick up the phone. You know, one of them wants to get into executive coaching. And so he and I've had some really good conversations and he, he opened up about some issues they're having with one of their adult sons. And so I was able to kind of pour into him and give some, give him some encouragement around some ideas of what to do with a, you know, an adult child that's still living at home that's having some issues. I know that's a very common issue in, in families. And so those, some of those have been renewed. But I have to say most of them have fallen away because I didn't go to high school or college in the area that I live. I want to know more about the adult child living at home. What is your advice for, for parents that are going through that? And what would you define as an adult at that point? In their 20s, you know, mid-20s and older. You know, James, it's so interesting. Um, maybe we'll get into this on, on the faith uh, topic but I, I started a church service on our lake. And because a friend of mine and I that had this vision that people come to their lake homes on the weekends and they don't want to leave and go to church. And so he and I said, wouldn't it be cool for us to combine our gifts and start a church that people come to by boat? Cool. And, and so to, to keep a really long story short, we can go in, into more of that later. We had 2,000 people come last summer to five services. So we averaged 400 people per service. 
And on the second service, I, I said, I'm going to ask you a very personal question. Now, this is a pontoon with a high-end sound system that my buddy wired. You know, it's like a $10,000 sound system with stereo or like stadium speakers on a pontoon. I said, but I'd like you to text me with what's going on in your life right now, with kind of your deepest, darkest struggle. And then we can let our speakers know what's going on among our community to preach about it. And, and we have an online presence so we can actually put material that would help you in the areas that you need. You know, the leading challenge that we got back with, I, I think out of, I think I got 40 or 50 texts, like in the moment, like text me right now, because we want to be, you know, a worship tribe here that's relevant. And so we got 40 or 50 replies within 15 minutes. And one of the leading things, this, sh this shocked me. One of the leading things that people were challenged by was issues with their adult children. Wow, that is so surprising. Isn't it? And describe the community for a second. So describe maybe what, the like, if you could say the demographics of the people that came to this. I would say the average age, because these are second home owners, and it's a, and it's a lake within 50 miles of the Twin Cities, so it's, it's an affluent community would be one demographic category. I would say the average age is probably 60, but there's, I mean, there's plenty of young families, but I think the majority would be weighted toward the fifties and sixties because they're the ones that can afford a home that's that close to the twin cities. And, and the average home on that lake is probably in the 600 range. And what was the grievances? Like what were specifics? Some of the things that they're unhappy with. Some would probably not be surprising, but would be things like, like they're not going to church. Like I'm concerned about their faith would be, would be one thing. But I think others were joblessness, alcohol, drugs were categories because we'd peeled the onion back a little bit when we started to understand what was going on. Lethargy, <laughs> laziness, right? They're still living at home and they're now 30. And I just can't motivate them. So it probably has to do with some gaming addiction, pornography, those kinds of things. So this category of my adult children was what they responded to on this open-ended text. That's really surprising. Of all the things, they, all the buckets that they could be worried about. I mean, I get being worried about your kids. That makes complete sense. But then basically, it's like the success of their children or what they're working on. Yes, it, it was a it was a surprise for all of us just as, as a planning team. So what did you what do you do? So how as a community of people, four hundred people, how do you help educate them on how to encourage their children or take their kids through the seven Fs and figure out goals and and purpose? Like what do you do? What what did you do? You know the first thing that that I started to share because I'm the MC, so I open it up. I we pray. We do, we read a psalm. And it's 39 minutes, right? This is kind of like hashtag no need to shower. Well, it takes like 20 minutes to get on your boat and get out there. So, you know, that's right. That's right. <laughs> hashtag your pew has a bilge, right? All these kind of fun things. But what one of the things, so as the MC that kind of ties the whole thing together, um, James, I think as parents, we need to be more vulnerable. 
I don't think our kids see us struggling as much as we do in our inside voice, inside our heads. We come off as we've got it all together. My wife has given me this feedback with our kids to say, Tim, you need to be more honest with where you're struggling. When you were asked to leave a Fortune 300 company after 35 years, and yet you put on a happy face for our kids, they're not growing up in reality. And so when they struggle or they have a challenge come up in life, they've not seen you deal with it. I think so. She's been in my ear to help me be more vulnerable as a parent to help our adult kids. And I just gave this advice to a CEO two weeks ago whose 14 year old is at home. You know, he wears designer clothes. He drives a brand new, beautiful BMW. He's got a really big CEO title. He's got all the accoutrements of wealth. And yet there's a struggle with this 14-year-old that's in his home. And I said, you need to be way more vulnerable about where you struggle. So you you brought up the, the company that you left. Was the music in your head different than what you were actually showing? Were you more upset by that than you were letting on? Oh, yeah. I was, you know, I was, I, I like to say that right, right after it happened and any executive who's let go from a position after three decades of, you know, I moved my family from Phoenix to Houston, to Dallas, to Minneapolis. I mean, you pay the price, you know, for your family uh, commitment to that corporation and then for it to just go up and smoke in a 20 minute conversation. Uh, I was, I was grieving, angry. 90% of my emotions were all of that. And then there was this little 10% thing that said, wow, I could, I could be a James, right? I could be an entrepreneur again. I could do some really cool things. And then that 10% grew to 20 and then 50 and then 80. And then, and so now it, you know, it suddenly was pushing all the grieving and anger away with time and journaling and prayer and meditation. And suddenly it was way better. But you know what? My kids didn't see the 90 of being upset, but I had to, my wife was in my ear saying, you just need to be more open and honest about that. And I think that's one avenue into the heart and mind of our adult children. When you have children, you want to protect them from being afraid of things happening to the family unit. I can understand why you would protect them from seeing this change you were going through. But how do you have those conversations and let them know what's going on, but also not have them be panicked? Like, oh, are my parents going to be homeless now? You know, a really, a really interesting exercise since um, our topic right now is about family and adult children is um, very practical idea to sit around the kitchen sit around the dining room table. It's called best thing, worst thing. Every, you have to go around the table and share what's the best thing that happened today and what's the worst thing that happened today. It, it's incredible how that just opens the dialogue. There's all kinds of clever cliches that talk about the televisions in our homes are getting larger and the kitchen tables are getting smaller. There was a funny uh, scientific study that was done and they looked at the Last Supper paintings. Yeah. Maybe you told me this story. I did. It's you know, in my why book. Why don't you just tell the story? Because <laughs> see, that shows how much we talk. I loved this story. Yeah, it's crazy. The the, the Cornell did this study, 
uh, and they said, let's study uh, the Last Supper, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, and let's find out what's happened to the size of the plates and the size of the servings of food, right? And um, so 500 years of studying different artists' rendition of that original painting. And what they learned was that the plate size grew 69%. So almost 70%. These plates used to probably look like small little, you know, saucer plates. And now it's like a golden corral <laughs> plate of food. And That's so funny. what that... That's what have, has happened to, in our society. So if we could even switch over to the other uh, opportunistic bucket of fitness here. And do you think, did they in that study go one step further, which I hope they did. Did they go one step further and overlay the, the world's BMI, the body mass index, over top to see if there's a correlation between those two? And for the listener, I'm going to put a link to Tim's book, the study, and everything else that we're talking about in the show notes for this episode. And you can find those at quandall.com slash Schmidt. That's quandall.com slash Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T. So I'd be be willing to bet that there's a direct correlation between (laughs) those, those two things. I think I just heard that the biggest loser television show is now in like 27 countries. So, I mean, that should tell you that if that's a trend of obesity, then it certainly would overlay onto these plates of a 70% increase. Now, you know, before we move on to, to into fitness, the worst thing of the day, you, you talk about the best thing, worst thing. I have a habit of talking about what I'm grateful for every single day at the dinner table. And recently, because of a, a friend, Dave Kirpin, I started adding two elements of that. One thing I'm grateful for in the house, so something with my wife or something about my day, and then one thing outside the house. Like, I'm so grateful for my car mm-hmm. mechanic, Keith, for helping with my car today. Like, mm-hmm. um, But the worst thing, that is really interesting because, at least me, I don't like to talk about bad things in my life i like to like shove them down deep and like make them better or move on from them i don't talk about it very often how do you i mean our job as parents and grandparents now that i am one is to prepare these kids for the world that's our number one job it's not to make their life easy it's not to to sugarcoat everything it's to prepare them for the world and so this old phraseology of a helicopter parent where you picture, you know, mom calling the college professor because Jimmy got a C minus in physics. I actually got it like a D minus. In- <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's the helicopter parent. Now there's this new phrase called the lawnmower parent that goes out ahead of the child and mows down any like potential problem or, or potential um, challenge. And so I think I don't disagree with you that you should have, you know, a list of 10 things you're grateful for before you go to bed. I mean, I've heard that. that in fact, I've heard that that is more powerful than multiple sessions with a psychologist. But they actually did a study of a control group of people that went and saw a psychologist over some issues that they want to resolve in their mental fitness and then they had another group of people that wrote down 10 things they're grateful for before they went to bed every night. And then they had a control group that did nothing. And they said, what happened? And to your point, 
It was the people that wrote down 10 things that they're grateful for. So I don't, I, I, I'm in totally agreement with you there as, as kind of a bedtime routine, but I think there's power in, in opening your kimono when you're with a family unit for my daughter to say, I got picked on at school today by Maria uh, because of the shoes that I was wearing. She made fun of me, you know? And so, boy, you wouldn't ever want that to be unresolved in the mind of your, of your kids. And so I think it just helps to build, you know, some questions. So what, what are you going to do tomorrow and how are you going to respond to her? And uh, what can we pray for? The, one of the beautiful things is it, it creates your prayer list <laughs> as a head of the, out of the family around some of those challenges. Yeah. You know, there's um, an entrepreneur I look up to a lot, the founder of Spanx, Sarah Blakely. Yeah. And she said growing up at the dinner table each day, her father would ask them every single night, what did you fail at today? He wanted to, one, I assume, build them up. And two, if you don't fail at something, if you never fail, did you do anything? Did you take any chances? Did you try anything new? Did you put yourself out there? Did you take a, a chance? So I really loved that. And I really like the worst thing of the day. And just even saying the word, like the worst thing of the day, feels wrong to me. Like my skin is kind of crawling even trying to think about it. Like I have. I've I've turned away from all negativity in my life like that. Right. So, right. <laughs> so the the adult children that are living at home and the the parents being more vulnerable, do you think this would work? Like if if it's at the point where where they're at, would it work to start sharing what's really going on in the house as far as in their with their work or with their life or with their health? You've made an interesting connection of dots. That's what you're so good at. You've connected this this text that we got back from this church service on the lake feedback, and now this dinner conversation. In my mind, when I'm thinking about this dinner conversation, I'm thinking about kind of when your kids are growing up. So now you're saying I'm having dinner with my 28-year-old around the table. Would that be a healthy habit? I, I do not see any reason why that would not be helpful. Because if it's if it's a skill set that that young adult hasn't developed because I've been a lawnmower parent, is he going to be or is she going to be 50 still living at home because we haven't taught them how to cope, you know, how to overcome some of those challenges? So where is the balance in that between love and, I don't know, pressure? I mean, that that's got to be a really hard situation to be in. Yeah. And you know what, James, I wouldn't I wouldn't say having people share their worst thing is anything but love. The outcome is to be supportive and to pray over some of those things. And so in a way, it can be very supportive. In, and and I, if I start, right, if I'm the adult or if I'm the dad in the group and my, or my wife starts with their best thing, worst thing, it just, it, I think it just lowers the tension. I think you're, you're sensing that it's going to be controversial or pressure. And and maybe it's a release, yeah. In a sense, maybe there, yeah. maybe each of the folks at this table have a lot of things they've wanted to share, and uh, they haven't. You know, um, my friend Doctor John Deloney 
wrote a really great book about anxiety. And he talked in there about us taking time to grieve. Mm. And you talked about the, the company that you left and like the grieving process. And you talked about actually like owning your grief and allowing a phase of grief and communicating that you're grieving to the people around you. For one, yeah, they can pray for you and they can help you, but also it allows you to process it. If it's just inside, you don't, you're, you're, you're almost hiding the grief. And I realized that while reading that book that I almost never grieve. I just jump straight into positivity. It's like, oh, flat mm-hmm. tire on the way to work. Well, oh, well, you know, I got the money to pay for it. No big deal. Like, I'm glad, but I don't. It, that's a bad example, maybe, but I don't even like give it a chance to be upset by that, even for a second in that example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So going back to the, the to that job, do you, or or even more of a recent example, how how can you how can we grieve better? What like how can we do a better yeah. job of that? Yeah, there's a really interesting uh, study that a, a professor from Texas conducted. There were 300 engineers all in their mid-50s that got laid off from one company. And his whole study was the power of journaling, connecting journaling to solving a significant mental crisis. That was his work. And so he broke up those 300 people into three groups. One of them journaled about their... um, emotions, their fears, their opportunities. One journaled about time management, one group, and one group journaled about nothing. And then they studied how long did it take those three groups to get rehired, to get their life back in shape, and to actually start to flourish again. And the group that journaled about their emotions had a 300% increase in the speed of recovery and getting back to work. So if any of your listeners are struggling with things like this, it doesn't have to be being let go from a a company after 30 years. It can be a challenge with an adult child, our earlier conversation. But by journaling your emotions, and, and what they said was set a timer, do it for 20 minutes a day for three days. And don't worry about punctuation. Don't worry about capitalization or neatness. The intent is not to create a legacy that you're going to pass on to future generations. This is just to get your thinking, all of the swirl that's going on in your head, down on paper so you can kind of begin to reflect on. And so it's a fast, so that's one way I think that people can think about coping with some of some of the issues that we've been talking about. So you did mention journaling before was that was a a, one of the uh, spiritual disciplines when you left that job. What did your journaling look like? And did you first of all, did you know about that survey at that time? I I think God put that in front of me very soon after. Wow. Because it became there's two things that that were put in front of me. My parents call it a holy coincidence, (laughs) right? (laughs) <laughs> which I love. I've used that for 58 years. Um, That's another one I'm going to add to my list of uh, Tim Schmidt uh, isms that I adopt. <laughs> it's a holy coincidence that 
that this article from this professor in Texas talked about, I think it's actually called Writing Your Way Out of an Emotional Funk is the exact title of the of the study. Yeah, and we're going to find that, and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes over at quandall.com slash Schmidt. That's quandall.com slash S-C-H-M-I-D-T, because I want to make sure we find those surveys and we link to them for sure. That's, that's awesome to make that available to everybody. I think I, that's one article that I have sent out, I think, at least 100 times in the last two years. When I hear people going through something tough, you know, and, oh, I'm not a journaler, you hear people say. But that, that, that one's outstanding. So what was the but other the, one? The second one was a Venn diagram that rocked my world and moved me from the 90-10 to the 10-90, right, that we talked about a minute ago. And, and it was three circles that intersect. And one of them was, what does the world need? And so, James, I literally journaled for an hour and a half on just what does the world need? Because I looked at myself as a, a resource that God put on the planet that now ended with this 35-year Fortune 300 career. And okay, so now why in the world did God put me on this planet? So I journaled about what does the world intimately need? Just one topic. Second circle was, what have other people told me I'm good at? Not my own ego thinking I'm good, but what over my career of having 360s done, uh, having many, many direct reports over the years, what have people told me that I'm good at? I journaled on that for an hour and a half just to go deep thinking deeply. And then the third circle was what gives me goosebumps when I'm doing it? (laughs) What's those things that I just work right through lunch and suddenly it's five o'clock and I go, oh my gosh, I had an awesome day. That's something I talk about in my best thing, worst thing. Here's, here was an awesome day. And so where those three circles intersect, of course, is your compelling life purpose. And so it was a super effective exercise to do at that moment in my life to wrestle with what the world needs, what I'm good at, and what brings me joy or what gives me goosebumps to land on that intersecting circle of all three. It was a powerful exercise that really moved me toward what was next. And what was the answer? Well, you know, what's interesting is uh, what the world needs, I think, is something that you are so passionate about is strong Christian leadership both at work and at home, you know, from me listening to your wise men Wednesdays and, and things that you work on, the guests that you get on the show, all are reflective of what the world needs. But I also have to say, I I get literally sick to my stomach when I think about the sex trafficking challenges all over the world. And so while it directed me toward what I want to do, But this exercise also directed me toward what's going to be the fruit of my labor. And so it even became, well, then I'm going to give away free executive coaching to executives of sex trafficking organizations. And so that's part of my ministry is I'm not just earning money to create wealth for myself, but I think I can help solve some of those problems that the world is facing. Is there a particular charity in that um industry that you like? International Justice Mission, uh, IJM, 
does some incredible work where they're less about rescuing one girl, you know, out of this trade, but instead influencing the politicians and the judges in third world countries that are turning a blind eye, where they're actually rescuing 50 at a time or holding people's feet to the fire in terms of um, helping to solve this horrific industry of selling boys and girls for sex um, to people who would buy it. I mean, it, it just is such a something I'm very passionate about helping to solve. I, I actually do not know very much about that at all. Is there a, a, a book you recommend that myself and maybe the listener read to, to know more about that problem? You know, I could probably get you information, James, for you to put in the show notes. I, I know the founder of IJM uh, has written a book about about that, but neither the author nor the book come to, come to my mind right now. Maybe we can bring them on the podcast and talk about it in some way if the yeah. if the listener was interested in, in in learning more about that. But um, yeah, that's that's great. So, how long ago did you go through this process? It was two years. And do you feel now are you are you where you want to be with those with those those goals that you discovered? Oh man, I, I am I am grateful every day that God has opened doors. You know, I, I prayed right when I was let go. Uh, my prayer was God open doors, and and you know, James, it was actually quite selfish because it was like, where am I going to make money now? God opened doors was kind of the you know bring me clients, but you know the door He opened was this church on the lake. You know, and, and our, our Facebook page is Sundays on Sylvia. It's just one word you know, on Facebook. And so people can go in and see drone shots from the sky looking down. You know what? God answered the prayer. God opened doors and he opened cabin doors and have people walking down their docks, getting in their boats and coming to a church service in a cove on the lake with homemade cinnamon rolls. Yeah, I wanted to mention something about that in the state we're in right now with church attendance declining and the younger generations of which I am a member of having disinterest, low engagement in the church. It's pretty amazing that you started a church here, which I'm looking at now on Facebook. It's really interesting that you found a method that not only, you know, some people joined, but then hundreds of people joined were were vulnerable because you you asked for them to send a text message with what's going on in their life and they actually replied that's fascinating because so many churches need that information on what direction to go in to serve the people because that's what they're there for yeah we started this I went on to the internet and said why don't people go to church and and there's lots of top 10 lists of why people don't go to church so we did everything the exact opposite of that, right? <laughs> it's, 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 we don't ask for money, even though we have a bank account that's so big, we need, we're giving money away now to local churches because we don't want them mad at us that we're like, we're in this kingdom work together. And so we're now distributing money to the local churches from this. So we don't ask for money. So let me clarify on that. You don't ask for money, but you get, you, you're getting money. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The other thing was it's too long. 
And so it's now we so it's 39 minutes, not a minute longer. We don't sing eight verses because I think we feel like we tax the saints when we do that. And so that we're just very intentional about paying attention to why aren't people going to church? And so that's that was kind of how we designed our order of worship. So do you think that a service like that for someone who left their faith, their child, the faith that they had when they were younger, or people that have never came to Christianity, do you, do you feel like that's an approachable location for a service? If you have a boat and you're on our lake, I do. There are two other lakes now that are starting to put together their own. So we call it the ripple effect, right? Pun intended. Oh, you are the master of symbols and pun. That's great. <laughs> so it's, it's, I do, I do think James that it's, it's just, we, we don't ever use the word worship. We call it a gathering, right? We don't use any denominational reference because all those are cognitive biases that people who have moved away from the church uh, or have never been in church have these biases. And so we just try to eliminate every single bias. There's no, there's nothing from memory. You know, a lot of churches are just rote worship. And so we've just really tried to tackle all the issues about why people wouldn't want to come. There was an interesting article that Tim Ferriss, there was, it was a guest post on Tim Ferriss's blog recently, and I'll link it in the show notes. But one of the writing exercises that this creative writing professor would, would give to his class members was to pretend that they're an alien coming down to Earth and they're watching something on Earth and describe what it looks like from the alien's perspective. And I was like, that's a really fun exercise. I couldn't really think of any good ideas. And then I was driving... I think this was Sunday afternoon a week ago, and I was driving past a church, and I saw the the um, priest in his robes, and I saw the people coming in, and I saw these hand symbols and these these statues and these strange outfits and this music coming from inside, and I go, well, that would be pretty confusing to an alien. Like they wouldn't really quite know what's going on in there or what we're doing. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. But then also just think about it as someone who didn't grow up in a church family. Like if you were in a, if you did not grow up in a, a church family, that's not easy to approach. Like I, I can see that. Like that would be intimidating. It's intimidating to me. Like and I have gone to church for many years. Yeah. One, I think one of the leading things uh, in, in one word is relevance. So I interview all the speakers to make certain that there is this compelling um, call to action. It isn't just philosophy of the story from the New Testament. It's like we're sitting in boats in 2021 on Lake Sylvia in Annandale, Minnesota. So now what? And I think because that was revealed as a reason people don't want to go to church, they don't see the relevance, that becomes a really big deal. So even when the speaker's done, I wrap up the whole thing with my notes in terms of this is what I took away and this is the action that I'm going to take. So I think I think that's also refreshing for people that we can we should be the hands and feet of Christ, not just the ears. Yeah, and I and I think that just being a good example for the people around us that they want to be a part of whatever we're a part of because we just seem we're not perfect. 
We're being vulnerable. We're sharing our worst thing from the day, but we're also sharing our best thing from the day and what we're grateful for. And then like that, those are the types of people I want to spend time around. I thinking about it, I really have built really good relationships, friendships with people that I I was vulnerable with and shared like you and I, we share the things that are going on in our lives, the personal things, the not so pretty things. It's not, you know, like I call you if I'm going about to get fired by a client or I think I'm about to lose a client and and I share what's going on with my wife's job and, and builds our relationship by talking about the best and worst things. Is that really not just in the household with our kids? Is that something we're missing in our friendships too? Yeah, yeah, I told you earlier that the CEO called when I gave him this one three twelve formula of how Jesus had uh, his really very tight inner circle, and he he was saying, "Well, there's this one guy I'm thinking about, but he doesn't really open up very much." And I said, "Dan, that cannot be your number one." <laughs> Has he opened up to this person? Because it you have to be vulnerable for somebody to be vulnerable with you, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, it, it really does. And so I think you do have to be careful how you open up. And so here's what happened to me 10 years ago, James. I, I'm on, sitting on a wooden bleacher in a Christian high school gymnasium. And this guy approaches me and says, you know what, Tim, uh, I've seen you uh, do, you know, chair the fundraiser for the school. And I've, I've, I, I heard you speak at a chamber event. You're, you just seem like a guy that I would want to have breakfast with once a month. I, can I buy you breakfast? I said, sure, let's find a date. And we did that. That's 10 years ago, okay? He is now my best friend. He runs a $15 million uh, company. He, it's, his name is on the company. And he's actually in the, in the fun chapter of the book, ironically. And in fact, he's the one who gave me the best thing, worst thing idea. Wow. We got to bring because him on the, the podcast. I, I tell you what, we should. But the, the, my point is, when we meet, this is going to get right at your question. In fact, I'm going to grab this portfolio. You, I'll even let you see it. There's, there's like four portfolios in here. One, two, three, right? Old ones that are stuck in here. When we meet, we have to give a score on a scale of one to 10 where our personal life is. And that's marriage, that's fitness, that's many of the seven Fs, but it's not work. And after we give a score, we have to say, what are the three things that I'm going to do in the next 30 days to move that up? Just one or two points, not going from a three to a 10, but what would make it a six? But we have to commit to each other the three things. Then we say on a scale of one to 10, where's your work life? Where's your profession? And what three things would move it up a notch or two or three? James, I have 10 years of these padfolio pads. And I'm tempted, you, you're always nudging me to use, you know, researchers in India to find, but I'm tempted to give this whole stack because we have a decade now of saying, where was my family score? Where's my professional score? And what are the three things I'm going to do to move the needle? Oh, wow. We, it would be fascinating for for a person or a machine to crunch those numbers it could spit out the the commonalities between all these surveys and find the specific tactics that made the biggest impact and then the longest impact too because yes. that's part of the issue i think with any of these 7f's at least for me it's 
okay, I'm spending time with friends. I'm having dinner once a month with friends. Uh, that bucket's going up. And now I am in hurting in my finances bucket because my friends are expensive. We'd like to go do fancy things. Or now my fitness is, is, is not as good. Like continuing to maintain all the buckets, I guess doing these seven Fs for so long What's the trick to maintaining what you got better at? And then, you know, how do you maintain it? Well, on the fitness side, I know that was one of the lowest scores among your audience. And so on the fitness side, a couple things that we that we do and that we learn, because in the book, we interviewed, we surveyed 1,500 people representing every continent. And then- How did you get out. someone in Antarctica, by the way? We did. We found one or two, so we could say that. Right. <laughs> we did. We I don't know if it, I want to know it, how much fun they have down there. What was their fun score? <laughs> we can find that out for you. Yeah, that's good. Uh and so what was so ironic was by finding out where people were, we then interviewed about 80 leaders, like CEOs, entrepreneurs, uh very successful not-for-profit leaders that scored a 9 or a 10 in one of the Fs and said, what are you doing? You're a CEO of a major bank. You travel 200 days a year and you gave your family score a nine. That's that's shocking that anyone in that job would do that. And that's exactly one of the stories we have in there uh, of a CEO of a bank that travels 200 days a year that gave his family score a nine. Wow. And in fact, I was having cocktails with him and, and it was like 10 minutes to nine at night. And he said, I got to go. And, and it felt like we were just like getting into a conversation. I said, why? He said, because I read Harry Potter to my son. I bought two copies. He's got his copy. I've got mine. And I'm, we're going to be reading together the Harry Potter book. It's like. That's the answer right there. Dude, that's just one practical thing to keep it going. So you ask me, how do you keep it going? And, and there's, there's three things that we learned that keep it going in the book. And it's the ABCs. The A is accountability. I mean, when I meet with my buddy Kirk for the now in, in the 10th year, I told him the three things I was going to do to improve my marriage score or fitness. And I told him the three things I was going to do on the personal or the business side. Accountability works. And that's what we found was common in the 80 or so leaders that gave it a high score. That's the A. The B is blending. The more Fs that we can put into one activity. I mean, if I go downstairs in my home right now and, and have a salad for dinner, I'm going to get one scale of fun or enjoyment out of that. But if I called you and Emily and, and, and said, hey, let's hop on our bikes and meet at this restaurant that's three miles from here. Think about that. You just got three of them at least. Well, you that. got fitness added. You got friends added. You got fun added. You got a healthier future added. 100%. Family. Right. So that's five, right? Um, and, and so all of a sudden, by just being conscious of blending the Fs, and then the C in the ABCs is calendaring. Ah, highly, uh -huh. highly successful people put those priorities on their calendar as an appointment with themselves. And so the ABCs, I think, are clearly a way to do that. And so one quick story 
is it, it and it fits James all three of your audience's lowest three scores friends fitness and fun so these three guys all wanted to live a healthier life and they said well let's meet at the gym and work out together that that sounds like we're we're blending a, a couple of those f's together but what about the accountability thing so when they got cleaned up and showered and headed headed into work they actually took each other's gym shoes home <laughs> so the next day when this when the alarm goes off at 5 a.m there's no way they're hitting snooze because i got james's shoes you're going to show up with my shoes well james is going to show up at tim's house that morning if he's not at the gym to come get his shoes and he's mad because he didn't get to work out so you you build in these accountability things to answer your question specifically how do you stay focused on what's working or improve an area that's not you have accountability you you blend the f's together so there's more joy and fulfillment in the exercise and it might be 5 on 5 basketball during your lunch hour that's the same concept of blending it with a group of friends and competing that's really great <laughs> yeah i'm i'm looking at the 7 f's and i'm trying to come up with interesting ways to blend some of these the friends and fitness being two of the opportunities, it does make sense for some type of team sports, tennis, golf, basketball, biking, yes. walking together, taking meetings with your coworkers, walking even possibly. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Have you seen any other accountability tricks that work well? Like I feel like calendaring kind of is accountability, but it, right. but what else have you seen work? Because I think that's the issue. It's it's everybody could look at these seven F's and say, oh yeah, I, I buy in, I agree with these, I need to work on these. And I think most people listening could also give two or three pretty good things they could do without a lot of prompting from us in each of these buckets, but the yeah. accountability to actually, and the motivation to continue to do it. You're smiling. So I think you got a, a good answer. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is so funny. When we did our book launch, we asked some of the same questions that you asked. You know, what's the one area that you want to work on the most? And it was fitness, right? And in fact, that was the same lowest score of our global survey. Fitness was the lowest by a long shot, just like your audience. And so we use these, these remote control things that you can use in meetings that shows a survey on the screen in real time, right? And we said, okay, what's your lowest score? Here's the seven Fs. And most you know, a lot of people hit fitness, and so it showed up at 60, 70% was their, their lowest score. And then as we went through some other questions, the other one that was really uh, interesting was we asked the question, which of the seven Fs could you mentor others on? <laughs> right? Yeah, I loved that. Yeah. And and guess and the number one was fitness. That makes no sense. <laughs> So it means half the group is really great at fitness and half the group is not good at it. Or the lowest score in was in fitness and the highest score was I could I could teach and mentor others on that topic that I suck at, right? I mean, it was, it was just uncanny how that came together. But you asked me for a specific practical thing to, to help people around this uh, driving accountability. And it is a website that I, it has probably helped me lose more weight than any other strategy. And it's a, it's a website called fatbet.net. 
and you literally compete against a buddy and then you wager something that would be painful if you lost it, right? Fatbet.net. A lot of people make the mistake and say fatbet.com. It's not. It's fatbet.net. And you literally have your weight loss on an X and Y axis that every time you weigh in, it puts a dot on your you know, X and Y axis so that it, it, it tracks where you are against your blue line, whether you're above or below. And it, it, it's fascinating. So, and have you used that? Oh, I I think I've used it four times. (laughs) And this last one was a buddy that I saw on Facebook who looked like he was 40 pounds heavier than college. And so I reached out to him and he was a fraternity brother, good friend. I said, dude, I need to lose 15 pounds. Let's do a 15 pound weight loss over the next two months. And let's make it a $200 bet and lunch in Orlando. So it was February. It was the end of it was February. I wanted to get out of town anyway, in in terms of the upper Midwest. And so we were going to visit them. And then the loser had to buy dinner and flowers for the winner's spouse and a $200 bill at dinner. You, You won, right? I did not win. Wait, you didn't win. I, I know it. I wrote a book about this and I still didn't win. He crushed me at the end. I swear he chopped off his leg. <laughs> I know it. So. <laughs> yeah, he showed up with one leg down in Orlando, but man, he looked good. <laughs> he lost like 30 pounds in two days. I couldn't understand. So it's funny, 26% of the people that took the survey, I just ran the numbers, they said they could mentor someone else in fitness. Okay. So that was the number one. It was the biggest opportunity on and it was also the thing that the most people thought they could mentor someone else on. Yeah. So basically yeah. what we're learning here is if you want to get better at fitness, go talk to one of your friends. Like one of your friends is probably good at fitness and they most likely are also needing another friend. And so you That's guys right. can blend two seven Fs together with friends and fitness. And play tennis together or work out together or go riding or whatever it is that you like to do. What do you like to do for fitness? I have a a sledding hill that's a mile from my house. And it's a really steep hill. And so I take trekking poles. I did it this morning. I put a podcast or a book on on, uh, my iPhone so that I'm pumping really good positive stuff in to start the day. But I'll do that sledding hill three times. I mean, my heart rate will just be really up. And then I walk back down and back up again. So um, that's my routine right now. Did you find any information when you're doing the surveys, your, your, your global surveys of what specifically about fitness people were struggling with? Was it weight loss was the primary thing? It was. And the, the major cause, James, is calorie intake. I mean, I think it's, it's no surprise to anybody that caloric intake is the number one reason for our obesity. It's not lack of me getting more cardio. I mean, cardio is so good for the heart. It does contribute to weight loss, but boy, if I'm not curbing my, my 69% increase in my plate from the last supper, then I am going to struggle no matter how much cardio or weightlifting I do. We, We have got to curb our calories. I think my dinner plates are the size 
of the uh, placemats in the original Last Supper. I mean, you know, the placemats now, you know, we actually got away from using placemats in, in America, probably because the plates got too big for the, the standard size of placemats. I think you're right. I think you're right. That's really cool. So the 7F survey, all of this information, the stories that you shared, you only shared a couple of the many, many stories in this book. I've got a bunch of pages turned over here. Before we end the show, I I do want to... There's two things I want to know about, actually. One was the term faked fitness, what that means to you. So we'll start with that. And then I'm going to... We'll close the the interview with one other section from the friends part of the book. You brought it up perfectly before. What is the purpose of Sarah Blakely, who's now a billionaire? What What is her product? She makes... Spanx. Spanx, yeah. I mean, she makes a lot of stuff, but that's what she started with. Yeah. (laughs) I thought you were going to trap me. (laughs) (laughs) What is the purpose of Spanx? Well, you you tell me. Fake fitness. Okay. Right? I mean, it is is a way to... um, And billions and billions and billions are spent here. You know, it's, it's, um, it's me wearing black. Because my love handles are bigger than I feel they should be right now. Oh, black hides but, your love handles? Dude, black hides everything. See, I didn't. Okay? See, that's a tip for the listener. Maybe everyone else knew but me. Uh, <laughs> James, what makes I, I you think... look more muscular when you're really skinny? <laughs> I want to wear that color. Maybe it's white, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think fake fitness is really about saying, I'm not going to walk the sledding hill three times you know, and, and get my heart rate up and actually curb my calories. Instead, I'm going to wear black and I'm going to have Spanx. And I mean, I think even men now have t-shirts that, that, you know, prop up your pecs. Yeah. That was on, that was on shark tank. You can get like fake glutes and bigger pecs and it's like underwear that makes your butt look bigger. Yeah. And so all of that is in, in replacement of like, working out, doing enough push-ups every day. One of my, one of my coaching clients does a hundred push-ups before 8 a.m. And then he's got some pecs and he's got a nice thin waist and he doesn't need any of the stuff that he's going to fake by purchasing a beauty product that way. So that's, that's the, uh, that's the fake fitness uh, piece. Okay. And then the other one, I think you'll have a good story on this is shut down and power off and a, a place called Log Off. Does that, do you remember that? Yeah, that was one of our executives who has a, a log cabin. And so her, her phraseology is to log off. And in fact, you taught me something about uh, what no screen Sundays. Yeah, I screenless think was, was, Sundays is a, yes. is a topic I coined. Um, and it, originally it was like screenless, like don't use a screen at all. And then I realized that that was kind of hard. And so now it's screen less, as in try to be, have some rules and some guidelines. But I feel like just cold turkey is not necessarily the best way to go forward. Yeah, I, I just heard a statistic about we're using our GPSs so much that it's rewiring our brain spatially, you know, so that we're not, we're not as good in terms of navigating streets and northwest, southeast and and that we just look at our GPS and drive in and then hit home and drive home. You know, I saw some Canadian geese the other day and it's uh, 
it's middle of June, and I'm in down here in the south, so maybe their GPS is fried too, because they should up, be up there in Canada by now, <laughs> or, okay. or 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 lakes, yeah. So they've got a so they've got a cabin called Log Off, and how does that work? What are the? I think when you get there, you put your phone in a basket and turn it off, and then and have no temptation to just continue to put your nose in that uh, in that smart device. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely nuts. It, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wonder. It's a miracle what we now hold in our hand, but boy, does it ever get in the way of authentic, deep relationships and, and deep conversations. Absolutely. So would you say that the screen technology is, is, is a big part of what's kind of lowering these scores of family and friends? I absolutely do. And back to our very first conversation, I think it has a lot to do with why some of our people that come to our gatherings on our lake are concerned about their adult kids. That it, it's almost an addiction that is antisocial. On the one hand, it's an amazing miracle that we've got access to so much. And on the other hand, it really is disrupting the way God, God wired us to be in relationship with one another. Yeah. Um, my wife and I take a trip once a year up to the mountains and we, we purposely choose this location because it doesn't get cell phone service and it's just kind of off the grid a little bit. I mean, it still has a DVD player. It's got a great view. It's got a fully upgraded kitchen, but you really can't get a hold of us there. And it takes like two days for me to actually unplug two days where I'm like, you know, I wonder about who this famous person is and I want to go check it up on Google or I think of someone I want to get in touch with, and I want to send them a quick email or a message, or I think of a work project I didn't finish, and I just want to send off a quick note. It takes like two days of not being able to do that before I can embrace the boredom, and I can just read for like five days straight, where I could just sit on the couch and read, or I can just mm. literally wake up and sit on the porch with a cup of coffee and watch the sun come up for like three hours, and mm before that, before I get that disconnection, I would be crazy by that. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder how we can, I feel like one day a week is a good place to start with screenless Sundays, but it's really not enough to, to cut off six other days of 24 seven connection either. Yeah. I, I think I've got two or three of my, my coaching clients that leave their phone in the car when they get home. That's great. That's because so they were so torn at the dinner table or right after dinner. There's this like immediate draw, like a magnet to it when you haven't looked at it for 30 minutes. And so, you know, one puts it in his nightstand when he gets home at, you know, say six o'clock. The other one leaves it in his car. So just so that you close the car door and you say, now I'm on to, you know, a flourishing life with my family. And I'm just going to, and I can check it at 9 p.m. Or, or 10 p.m. if I, if there's some big project going on, but it doesn't need to be 35 times between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. Yeah, you were just at work for eight hours. You can at least give two hours to what's in front of you at home. Yeah. That's right. And, That's right. And also, I have to challenge the listener, if you're afraid to put your phone on silent in the other room for two hours when you get home from work because you have such a big, important job and, and think people are going to need you. Granted, mm -hmm. unless you're an on-call firefighter, nurse, or, or something like that. I, I question, this is a challenge, I question your leadership 
because you should be able to create processes and systems that allow you to disconnect and spend time with your family for two hours because I pray that you're allowing your workers to do the same thing because otherwise you're not going to have anyone working very, very long and like it, they're, they're, they're going to burn out. Like you need to create space for other things. Yes. So I, I, I normally wouldn't get on a soapbox on, on the show, Tim, but uh, I'm very passionate about that, that I, I really do believe that we have these phones in front of us way too much. Yeah. I think your listeners want you to get on a soapbox. Like, what is James really passionate about? Well, it's that's these... one of those things. Go read <laughs> okay, my Screenless good. Sunday article. That's that's one of those things. But Tim, this has been so much fun. And I really, we did not. So the seven apps, just to, to, to say all seven of them one more time. They're faith, family, finances, fitness, friends, fun, and future. And the book goes into detail in every one of these. We were only able to hit a few of them. We blended some of them together. But really, if, 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 if you want to find a system that's already been proven to help find balance in the, all the different avenues of your life, all these different buckets, this book is a good place to start. Tim is a great person to listen to. You can learn more about him. Um, I'm going to include links to everything in the show notes that we talked about. But Tim, tell us a little bit more about where we can find out about you. Yeah, thank you. Um, my company is called Dry Dock Consulting. And I love the image of a dry dock because you've got huge ships that come into dry dock out of the chaos of the ocean and the tides and the salt water and the barnacles and the seaweed, and they come to rest. Once at rest, you strip the water away to see what's going on underneath the surface. Then you begin to reframe and reimagine what that ship could do. And then it reemerges toward its true north back in the ocean again. I mean, it's exactly what you're doing when you score your seven Fs. To come to rest, have silence and peace around this, reflect, reframe, reimagine, and reemerge. And so I'm actually in the middle of a 90-day challenge right now on YouTube. And if people just search Tim Schmidt dry dock, they will go right to it and they'll have probably a month and a half worth of nine, seven to nine minute videos that just talk about how to invest more into yourself. Seven Fs is one of those seven minute videos. And then there's another section on how to invest in others if you're in a leadership role. And then how do you invest in your business? And so they could come right alongside, James, the this experiment that I'm running on, can I do YouTube videos. And it's kind of a fun experience. It's very small, very niche right now, but people I think would get a lot of value out of that. I'm also on LinkedIn. They can find me on LinkedIn, Tim Schmidt, Dry Doc. And then I have to be honest, I don't have any business cards and I and my website is like 90% done. And so by the time this runs, we'll probably have a website that people can go and find me and check out all the resources that I provide. Well, I'll make sure that I put a link to your YouTube channel, a link to buy your book on Amazon, a link to the upcoming website, a link to your LinkedIn, and every other resource that we talked about on today's show in the show notes for this episode. And those will be found at quandall.com slash schmidt, quandall.com slash schmidt, S-C-H, 
M-I-D-T. Tim, this was so much fun, and I think we're going to have to get you on the show again because you have so many more stories that I think people need to hear, and I just uh, enjoy getting to chat with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, James. You do a great job with this. Thank you.